This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. A mother puts her children into a refrigerator truck and asks, what else could I do? A runaway teenager comes of age on the streets, sleeping in abandoned buildings. A student leaves his war-ravaged country behind because he doesn't want to kill. Everyone among the thousands of people who come to Europe in search of asylum each year possesses a unique story. But those stories don't end as they cross into the West. In Lights in the Distance, acclaimed journalist Daniel Trilling draws on years of reporting to build a portrait of the refugee crisis as seen through the eyes of the people who experienced it firsthand. As the European Union has grown, so has a tangled and often violent system designed to filter out unwanted migrants. Visiting camps and hostels, sneaking into detention centers, and delving into his own family's history of displacement, Trilling weaves together the stories of people he met and followed from country to country. In doing so, he shows that the terms commonly used to define them refugee or economic migrant, legal or illegal, deserving or undeserving, fall woefully short of capturing the complex realities. The founding story of the EU is that it exists to ensure the horrors of the 20th century are never repeated. Now, as it comes to terms with the worst refugee crisis since the Second World War, its declared values of freedom, tolerance, and respect for human rights are being put to the test. Lights in the Distance is a uniquely powerful and illuminating exploration of the nature and human dimensions of the crisis. Lights in the Distance, Exile and Refuge at the Borders of Europe by Daniel Trilling. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Socialist Alternative member Shama Sawant was elected to Seattle City Council way before socialism became the cool thing. After her 2013 victory, the New York Times marveled that she, quote, took a left at liberal and then kept on going all the way to socialism, which they described as, quote, a political brand most politicians run from. Wow, have things changed. These days, socialism is a political brand that a growing number of successful politicians are running on rather than from. Today, I'm talking to Sawant about how socialists can build power and win at the local level, and how in Seattle that means taking on Amazon, which recently helped coerce her colleagues on city council to reverse themselves on a big business tax that was earmarked to help the homeless people who have been squeezed out of the housing market by an economy dominated by those very same big businesses. In other words, socialism in one city isn't easy. Before we get started, this podcast is a listener-supported podcast, so please... Support us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you listen to us and can afford to contribute, 
please take a moment now to do so, so we can keep this thing up and running for the long haul. Plus, $5 a month gets you access to our newsletter. $10, and I'll send you a copy of either Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of left-wing books. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Please hit pause now and make a contribution so that we can keep pumping this analysis into your earbuds every week. Okay, here's Shama Sawant, a member of Socialist Alternative on Seattle's City Council. Council member Shama Swan, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. You are an open, seize the means of production style socialist, and you were elected to city council in 2013, which is quite a few years before socialism became cool. What's it like to look back on that moment five-ish years ago now when your victory was reported as as a curious oddity of sorts? now that socialism is suddenly part of mainstream American political discussion? I think looking back, it, more than anything else, proves correct the analysis that we had in Socialist Alternative and hopefully other organizations of the left also had this, that uh, the Occupy movement heralded a tectonic shift in U.S. consciousness in many ways and we were starting to see, especially young people, but working people as a whole, you know, majority of them starting to openly express their anger and frustration at the system as it was on it as it was and is on offer. A system as the Occupy movement said, in which banks got bailed out, the very banks that caused the crisis got bailed out and the rest of us, workers, young people, got sold out. And when we ran our first campaign in 2004, uh, 2012, I'm sorry, this was before the year that we ran our city council campaign. In 2012, we ran our first campaign for state house in Washington state against Frank Chop, the speaker, Democratic speaker of the house of the state of Washington, arguably the most powerful Democrat in the state. And while we didn't win that race, we we got such a strong result in that race that it was a little more confirmation of what we have been thinking, that there is a huge opening for the left to run unambiguously working class campaigns, campaigns that unapologetically called for the needs of working class people, of young people, of the marginalized communities, of people of color, of women to be met and a campaign that had the courage to call out corporate politicians, the corporate parties, big business, and so on. And uh, so that gave us the uh, sort of the confidence to run the campaign in 2013, which we ultimately won against a powerful 16-year Democratic incumbent on city council. And I think that even since then have really shown that there is. Um, you know that that 
we're, we're really essentially in a new period as far as the uh, as far as the prospects for social movements, mass movements are concerned. And in fact, Bernie Sanders really uh, showed that on a national scale. I mean, we had done something much smaller on a city level, but by running as a self-avowed socialist in the presidential primaries and the resounding echo that he got from tens of millions of working people throughout the nation, that showed that there was real uh, that was there was a real shift taking place in consciousness, and I think the 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 most striking aspect of our times is that uh, unlike ever before in our lifetimes, there is a real potential to build the left in the United States, but what's sorely missing is a real leadership for that. I think mean, I think that's what stands out. Not that people are not willing to fight for something different. It's that there isn't that leadership yet. And that's what we were showing through socialist alternative campaigns, that this is what the left needs to do. And so with the elections of uh, Ocasio-Cortez and Salazar, we're seeing that it was by no means a one-off. You know, when we were elected, as you said, the political establishment, political pundits, political operatives of the Democratic Party, and this is, keep in mind, this is a very Democratic Party-controlled city and state, uh, you know, they really uh, wanted to perceive it as an oddity or an artifact of the peculiarities of Seattle or specific characteristics of me as a person, because they really wanted to dismiss the idea that something deeper was shifting in the United States. But now we're seeing that that's not true. It was framed as more of a cultural attribute, maybe, of the quirky Pacific Northwest than something that was fundamentally political and economic. Yeah, there was plenty of that. Or it was all very, um, you know, very uh, wonky and specific analysis of some specific thing that we had done in our campaign. Oh, that's why you want it, but otherwise you wouldn't. So I think that that is uh, wishful thinking on the part of the establishment, and it would be quite a mistake for us on the left as movements to dismiss it that way. I think it behooves us to seriously understand that there is a a potential to uh, really change the course of history, but that will require leadership uh, on the left, that will require uh, building a real momentum. And so it can't only, I mean, elections are one part, but I would say the other a phenomenal event, a political earthquake-style event that has happened is the successful nine-day wildcat strike of the West Virginia educators. That shows that, you know, there is there is a latent sort of fire burning below that needs to be tapped into. I do want to look back at one particular thing about your campaign, which is that you made the demand for a $15 minimum wage really the centerpiece of your platform how did you and Socialist Alternative decide on that as your campaign central issue? Because even though, obviously, you're part of a socialist movement, the the, the, the top of the platform is not going to say seize the means of production. It's going to say something more concrete, short-term, medium-term, more tangible. Given all the pressing issues you could have chosen in Seattle, h- how did you end up choosing that? And explain how it played out in terms of building your campaign organization and ultimately helping to propel propel you to victory? I think that's a very important and serious question. Uh, 
uh, and it's not about discussing, you know, uh, incidental artifacts of any given moment in time. That's a very important strategic question. You know, what demand should we raise? And it, it also, your question highlights that the left, uh, like any, um, like any political entity that wants to be successful, needs to have effective strategies and tactics. So no two campaigns are going to be carbon copies of each other. You know, every situation demands that we study the uh, facts on the ground and come up with the best ideas for that moment. And as to why $15 an hour at that time, we, it was, again, you know, it's a, it's a question of making a, a, a scientific prediction, so to say. I mean, that is part of the work of a Marxist organization is not only to provide a Marxist analysis of capitalism and propose an alternative, which is obviously fundamental. But in addition to that, it's also having an assessment and analysis of real life situations at a given moment and looking ahead and understanding what might make sense in terms of what demands to highlight, uh, what we think is going to capture the imagination of the majority of working people who, who need to be part of a campaign. Otherwise, you know, there's no campaign because it has to be powered by working people. So it, it's all of that, uh, all of um, that calculus that led us to understand and predict really that $15 an hour was starting to capture the imagination of working class people throughout the nation. If you remember in the fall of 2012, this was when we were, you know, when we had wrapped up our first campaign for state house, and we had, uh, you know, achieved a really good result, 30% of the vote, which was huge against the most powerful Democrat in the house. And when we were looking ahead into 2013, that was when, you know, around Thanksgiving, November 2012, McDonald's workers and other fast food workers in in Manhattan walked out demanding 15 and a union, and there was something in the air that we realized that. You know, $15 an hour is going to be a demand that will propel working people into a concrete struggle. Especially in cities like New York and Seattle, which share in common being places where the cost of living is skyrocketing uh, because of an economy that is fueling all this money to the top, but is based on this this huge backbone of low-wage labor. And there's this real contradiction there. Exactly. And that contradiction actually has a lot to do with consciousness, you know, because ordinarily our, our intuition as, a, as human beings might tell us that, well, you know, things have to get really bad before working people rise up. It, and obviously there is truth to that. I mean, the, the miserable conditions that work, the working class is subjected to is precisely what is one of the one of the factors that that you know enables the consciousness to develop as to why we need to change the system. Certainly, however, it is that is not the that is that does not explain the full logic of how how consciousness works. And it is what you said is is what's important, which is that in cities like Seattle and New York New York City, they you know people could see that the recession had ended as far as the billionaires were concerned. There's a construction boom. And it's not so much that finding a job is hard, but finding a job that pays your rent and allows you to uh, have money for food and shoes and so on, that's hard because the jobs that were 
you know, so to say, middle class that were lost in the recession virtually never got replicated. And the jobs that replaced them were low-wage jobs. And that was like a death sentence that young people are sentenced to. You know, you come out of college with massive amounts of student debt, and all you get is a low-wage job. So the, the contradiction between the incredible wealth to for a few in the city compared to the lot of uh, everyone else, that, that, that fuels a certain anger and resentment and uh, acts as a fuel for social struggle. And that, that was certainly true in the case of uh, the fight for a higher minimum wage. And I think it also touches on the other point you added in your question, which is that uh, certainly we, no, we make no secret, and I make no secret, that uh, socialist alternative is fighting for systemic change away from capitalism, and we are fighting for uh, fighting against global capitalism. But it, we don't have a, a simplistic and ineffective approach where we simply say that talking point and then expect everybody to follow us. We don't. It, it doesn't work that way. A slogan so is not a program or a yes, strategy. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, we need a strategy, and and part of that strategy is understanding that the fight for reforms is tied to the fight for systemic change. And it's not so much whether or not you should fight for reforms. We should, as Marxists, it's our job to be fighting alongside other working people for reforms. The question is, which demands do you take up at a given moment? And how do you fight for those demands? I think that's what's important. I think the $15 an hour in itself was a huge victory, historic victory in terms of the material change it brought about in the most poverty-stricken workers, you know, transferring $3 billion from the bosses to the lowest paid workers. There's no question about it. I Even today, when I enter grocery stores or when I'm shopping at Goodwill, people will say, uh, people will come up to me and say, because of that 15, I, I was able to quit my second job and spend more time with my children. So certainly, materially, it changed. But I would say, the far bigger gift you get for the movement in fighting for reforms, if you do it right, is the lesson that the movement learns while fighting for it. You know, the lesson that big business is not on your side, the lesson that corporate politicians will betray you, the lesson that even well-meaning politicians who don't base themselves in social struggle will end up betraying you, whether they're well-meaning or not. These are more precious things that we gain out of the fight for any reform, and that that's what we should use to carry on the fight further. It seems like strategically the the question, as you put it, is not whether to pursue reforms under capitalism or not, but how to strategically approach those reforms is what determines whether reforms um, ultimately protect the the system and limit our horizons of what is what sort of change is possible, or whether those reforms are are radicalizing and open further potential for transformation. Exactly. How did how did the fight ultimately play out? By by all accounts, your candidacy played a huge role in pushing fifteen dollars to the center of Seattle politics and getting it passed into law. But you weren't thrilled with the compromise that your colleagues hashed out, if I understand the history correctly. Explain what happened. I feel certain that, and socialist alternative feels certain that we would not have won fifteen dollars an hour had we also had the movement also not won. Um, a city council seat through my candidacy. At the same time, we would not have won had we not based ourselves in building a movement and you know, explicitly used our council seat to build and amplify the movement around 15. 
And I already believe this, but it, for, it was also a, a live demonstration of what we believed in, which is that we don't, um, we don't believe in this, what, I, what we feel, feel is a false dichotomy between, or oh, should we have electoral struggle or should we do base building or you know, street heat or workplace struggles? We don't, we don't view it from that lens because I don't think that's accurate and it is not clarifying or helpful in the sense that movements are the bedrock of social change. I, I, I think that is absolutely true. The question is, what, what strategies should social movements use, should mass struggle use in order to push for social change within capitalism and raise the vision of systemic change? And uh, the $15 an hour struggle was an example of how uh, not that winning the seat was not important, it's critical to win 15, but it, but it was how we used our seat that mattered. So ultimately, I would say the most clarifying formulation for all of this is for uh, our movements on the left, mass movements, social movements, to be, you know, to to be to be built from the ground up, to be built democratically, to have our own political organizations that will um, bring up the voice of the marginalized, but with the best ideas and with the best demands, with the best strategies and tactics, and through that movement running our own candidates for office in such a way that we can not only hold them accountable, but it is not merely about holding them accountable. It's about running candidates who are, who've been tried and tested through struggle, through the, you know, through the crucible and understand that their role is not to aggrandize themselves either financially or personally, you know, in terms of for building a cult of personality, but rather using that office in a rigorous way to uplift struggles that had that have propelled them to victory in the first place. That's the spirit with which. So you're not the we next. Approach. You're not the next Bob Avakian of. Uh... <laughs> yes. No. We, no. We we don't believe in a cult of personality. We find that very, that's very destructive. Concretely, see when when we raised the fifteen, the banner of fifteen dollars an hour during our campaign that same year, you have to keep in mind the small city of SeaTac, where the airport is located, neighboring city. Uh, the labor movement was fighting for a ballot initiative that was an omnibus bill that included fifteen dollars an hour as a prominent demand, but it also included other things for workers, workplace rights, and. Once that won, and especially when it looked like it was going to win, uh, it, and our campaign, our, our, our campaign as socialist candidate for city council was gaining momentum, it was clear that 15 was all over the city. You know, the demand for $15 an hour had really uh, captured the attention, and it was prominent enough, and we had been, we had been aggressive enough uh, in our campaign that it forced the even the establishment candidates in the mayoral race, which was happening that same year in 2013, to pledge one way or another. I mean, in fact, it became one of the decisive factors that uh, determined who won the mayoral race in terms of who came first, who came out first and said, I support $15 an hour. That reflects already the pressure of the movement. So even before I took office, we had had, as a movement, we had had that impact through my campaign, through our campaign for city council. So when we, when, when after we took office, um, and this is where it's important, you know, what strategy you use, um, 
A few weeks after I took office, two of the leading council members, corporate politicians who are no longer serving because they both retired, uh, they came to my office, sat me down, and said, it was all well and good that you've roused the rabble. We want the city to tell you is City Hall works on our terms. You're not going to win anything. We just thought we'd let you know. I'm not making this up. Wow. This, it was, make it, was as straight, it was as straightforward as that. <laughs> <laughs> this, these are the things that happen. My, my, my reason for sharing that story is, is to say that it doesn't matter which intentions you get elected on from the left. That's not the end of the battle. That is the start of the battle. Once you take, on, take your elected office, you have to have complete clarity that you're not going to base yourself in, uh, in when trying to win the approval of corporate politicians. You have to understand you're not serving with them as their colleague. You are there to represent the movement, which is, uh, to, to which these corporate politicians are antagonistic towards. And those politicians represent the interests of big business. So by definition, it is polar opposite. You you don't, you know, you don't um, you don't make a deal on, on that basis. I mean, if compromises are achieved in such a way that it helps the movement, that's a different question. But that's entirely different than saying, oh well, you know, I need to please these two council members who threatened me. So um, I need to maybe uh, water it down from 15 to 12, and then you know, betray the movement. No, what we did, what uh, what and what I did was. I, from day one, we based ourselves in the movement. So even though the mayor, who had been forced to make a promise in his election year, uh, set up this so-called committee where it was half full of big business, half full of labor, he invited me to be on that committee. And uh, he, I think the establishment assumed, the Democratic establishment assumed that if I was to accept being on that committee, that I would give up my ability to continue building the movement, that I could get co-opted, and certainly there were lots of attempts. And that you would go go along with whatever the committee came exactly. up with. Exactly, but we didn't do that. See, that's the thing. So, but but my point is that it is not. I mean, the, it's not about my moral backbone. I mean, yes, that's part of it, but that is only one part of it. The real strength of our of what we've been able to do is that socialist alternative as the political organization that determines uh, you know, our campaigns and, and what we do in the office is very clear that we have to be rooted in social struggle and that we cannot betray working people. That is the approach we use. So even though the mayor had set up this committee, we ended up, and I, was, I did serve on that committee, but I, but I said at the press conference, I'm serving here as a shop steward for Seattle's working people. You know, so <laughs> I'm not one of you, but I'll be there just like unions are at the bargaining table. Uh, and that outraged them, but they couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and then at the same time, we launched the 15 Now grassroots campaign, which was the main reason we won, honestly, because it was the tactics that 15 Now put forward that won the day. And in fact, uh, you, the Chamber of Commerce admitted that it was those tactics that forced their hand. Uh, and so, you know, ultimately, yes, we didn't win everything, and the corporate politicians ended up betraying, predictably betraying, working people's interests by putting through a temporary tip penalty, a disabled uh, wage, a training wage. We didn't win everything, but it was, it was an example of how you build a real live movement with continuing discussions on tactics and strategies and arriving at the best possible 
outcome given the power dynamic between big business and workers. I mean, and if you think about it, despite the loopholes that big business succeeded in winning, they you can imagine how um, infuriating it was for big business that workers had the temerity to demand $15 an hour. I mean, that was like a 65% jump in wages and actually win it. And, you know, it, and, and, and the confidence that it raised for working people to go ahead and win other victories. I mean, that, that, is, that is something to be beholden. I want to turn to an issue that's been a priority for you after the victory on the Fight for 15, which which is housing rights and the rights of homeless people in Seattle. And I want to discuss the fight over the so-called head tax in the city, which which would have taxed large employers $275 per employee to fund housing and services for homeless people to help the very people that the Amazonification of Seattle is squeezing out of the city. Initially, it was passed unanimously by city council, but less than a month later, it was repealed by a 7-2 to vote after Amazon and other business elites waged this overwhelming campaign against it. Tell me about what, what happened and what this story reveals about who actually governs and wields power in Seattle. Right. I think that was uh, quite a revelation uh, to a lot of people who would like to believe, you know, out of their own good intentions, which is completely understandable, that, well, you know, billionaires are human beings, and if they understand how deep our problems are in the affordable housing crisis, surely they would not be as churlish as to refuse to pay a tax that essentially amounts to pocket change for them. Because why would they? I mean, that seems gratuitously cruel. Why would they do that? And I'm not being facetious at all. I'm being very serious in, in the sense that... This no, is- in some way it could be seen as they're in their own interest if they were farsighted enough to just ensure the basic social reproduction of the city that they require to do their business every day. I think there's definitely that that argument, yes, that, you know, isn't it in your interest to not have, uh, you know, not have working people be miserable and wanting to revolt? Yes, that is true. But that's what represents the, the built-in contradiction under capitalism. For, for the capitalist class, you can argue, yes, doesn't that make it better for you, and it's a bit of a, you know, Keynesian style argument. But on the other hand, uh, given the cri- deep crisis that capitalism is in, we're not at the same moment as in the, you know, post-World War II situation where the combination of a more, at least temporarily, robust economy combined with the um, the strength of the labor movement, which is, you know, critical. Without that, it's not the largest of big business, but it's what you force them to concede, uh, ultimately. But that combination um, is, is, not, is not the exact situation right now. And so I think it is also important for us to understand, and I think that's one of the, hopefully one of the lessons of the setback that the movement had to bear, which is that uh, while you may think that it would make sense for billionaires to you know, allow for a modicum of change to happen, the flip side of that is that 
billionaires like Jeff Bezos understand very clearly, as we should, that if you concede on this one thing, if you, if you let the movement win a victory on this one thing where, you know, think about how it's posed. Right? It's a David versus Goliath fight. You have, on the one hand, a trillion-dollar corporation, this behemoth, this unprecedented behemoth headed by the richest man in the world being challenged by these little people of Seattle. I mean, just the idea of it would have been so powerful. It had the tax been retained and not been repealed. Think of the powerful message and the shot of adrenaline that it sends through working people's movements in every other city that, oh my God, you were able to slap a tax on Amazon. This can be done. I think that's precisely right, that it's really not just about the money for them. It's it's the subordination, their subordination to the, to state power that the tax would reflect. That's utterly unacceptable to these companies. I think Bezos might be perfectly happy to give away through his own, you know, voluntary free will, the same amount of money through philanthropy, but this power relationship and the subordination of business to to state power, I think is just outrageous to these people. The attempt by working class people to upend the what the billionaire class wants, the power relations to be, the attempt to upend that uh, will be punished, you know, and it will be punished viciously by, by big business and by people like Jeff Bezos. Although I will also add that in reality, if you look at the philanthropy engaged by uh, billionaires and corporations, it is actually a fraction of what they, you know, claim to do. I mean, what what Jeff Bezos has given as philanthropy is a fraction of, Mm -hmm. it's a small fraction of his wealth. And it really isn't, while the tax itself was going to be like pocket change for him, it was still bigger than what he is willing to give as charity. But furthermore, we know that, that the charity doesn't work. It is not enough and it's not going to work. And ultimately, unless we find a way to actually build affordable housing for which we need revenues, it is not going to uh, solve the problem. So if he gives a couple of billion dollars to some charity that we, we know that it, it does not address the question. And in fact, the, why, why billionaires are going to be uh, fighting tooth and nail against even seemingly modest reforms, I mean, from our standpoint, they seem modest, is, I think, already demonstrated what happened following uh, the fight for the Amazon tax in Seattle, which is that despite the setback, we saw two things happening. And they are examples of what people like Bezos don't want to see happening, which is the example becoming contagious. Already three cities in California have ballot initiatives for this November along the same lines. And you saw Bernie Sanders introduce the Stop Bezos Act, which is slightly different, but it's about holding corporations like Amazon and Walmart accountable for the money that ordinary taxpayers end up spending to uh, enable public assistance for miserably paid workers in the warehouses and in the Walmart retail stores. And so I see those two things, the ballot initiatives in California and what uh, Bernie Sanders has done, as direct, at least partially, as direct outcomes of the phenomenal movement in Seattle. Because even though it was a setback for us here, uh, what it did do is 
put squarely on the political map of the nation the idea of municipalities taxing big business and big tech to fund housing and other infrastructure. Now, that is not going to go away. And this is precisely what billionaires don't want. It is not only about appending the power relations at that given moment. They, they understand that if working people can win through their own volition, through building a fighting movement, if they can win a victory, that is hardly going to be the last thing that they will fight for, that it will only fuel further movements. But that is precisely why we want to fight for reforms, because we know it has that impact. We know that it can fuel further struggle. That is why it's important to keep fighting. One of your colleagues, Council Member Lisa Herbold, said that while she supported the head tax, that in her assessment, business had successfully mobilized public opposition to it and that they would have won a referendum on the ballot this November to defeat it. And so that was her justification for voting to to repeal. What do you make of Herbold's argument? And is it true that there is a grassroots reactionary insurgency against homeless people in the city of sorts? I'm really glad you're asking this question because this is the kind of um, nitty-gritty that we should get into in order to draw out the correct lessons. I, I mean, first of all, I would say that as you correctly pointed out, Daniel, they repealed the tax less than a month after it was passed. So it's not as if big business had carried out a vilification campaign for many months and we had to admit defeat, at least for the moment. What, what we saw happening, in our view, was fundamentally no different than what we had seen during the fight for 15. When we first were campaigning, you know, when we had launched 15 now in 2014, and we were, you know, talking to workers, and every time I went into the grocery store, I would talk to the uh, people who working at the checkout queue, hey, have you heard of our 515? What do you think? Don't Because they were some of the workers who would benefit from it. And I asked them, what do you think about it? And for easily two or three months, often what I would hear would be, well, that sounds like a really good idea, but I keep hearing on the news that it's going to uh, force small businesses to shut down. It's going to lead to unemployment for people like me. I don't really know if I support it. Well, guess what? That was another vilification campaign against a progressive measure carried out by the Chamber of Commerce, by many billionaires, big business. It was a big business funded campaign of lies and distortions, none of it based on fact. And what did we do? We didn't just fold up shop and say, oh, well, you know, working people are buying into these lies. We can't do anything. Let's just, you know, let's just close it up. Let's uh, dismantle 15 now, dissolve 15 now, and go to something else. No, what we did was we, through uh, a fighting movement, we carried out a political education of workers citywide, meaning we had rallies, we had marches, we had two major 15 now conferences. uh, we, uh, you know, went door knocking. We had tables throughout the city to explain to workers, hey, actually, these are all lies, and this is why you should fight, uh, support this struggle and be part of it, and so on. So our argument when big business did a similar thing, of a similar campaign of lies and distortion, which they did, absolutely did, uh, it was vile and vicious, but they did it. Uh, when they did it for the Amazon, against the Amazon tax, uh, our response, and my response as council member and response of socialist alternative was, well, of course, we expect big business to do this. It is not a surprise to us 
we expect Bezos to try to um, try to um, undermine this. And what we need to do is uh, launch a city citywide summer and fall door knocking campaign so that we can go to tens of thousands of voters and explain to them why they should be voting no on the big business referendum, why it was all lies, and why uh, this tax was going to fall on the most profitable businesses only, like the top 3%. I mean, the tax was literally on, on the top 3% of businesses. When I explain these facts to people, they're absolutely like, where do I sign up? But that's not what big business is telling them. So what we needed was a massive months-long uh, political education and fighting campaign to undermine that uh, ballot measure referendum that the big business had launched. And instead, instead, city council, I mean, it's certainly possible you might have lost, but the way it played out with just in, in a, like a month's time or less, just city council humiliatingly apologizing to, to Amazon and big business and saying, oh, I'm sorry we offended you. We we regret we regret the air. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. Yes, yes. and as you as you used the correct word, it was it was a humiliating mo- moment for the legislative body, highest legislative body of the city of Seattle. It was craven and was shameful. But it, you know, aside from that, I mean, using adjectives, it's also about explaining this politically. Why did they do that? Why did Herbold say what she said, and why why did seven of those council members, seven of the nine council members, repeal it? Uh, not all of those who repealed, I would characterize as out-and-out corporate politicians and real, you know, I, I think Herbold and O'Brien are council members who often, uh, you know, are allies to the left, and I've certainly worked with them on many, many issues. But here is where the real lessons need to be drawn out. I mean, for lesson number one, do not expect billionaires to be on your side. Expect them to fight tooth and nail against even the smallest of reforms. Do not expect corporate politicians to be on your side because they are representing the interests of big business. But here is the more subtle lesson, which is that even with well-meaning politicians, progressive politicians like Herbold and O'Brien, because their strategy is not to turn outward and really use their office to build a fighting movement the way we use our office, and because their strategy is to try and strive for an agreement with other politicians who are actually out-and-out corporate politicians, it doesn't work. That is why it was a recipe for failure. And if they are trying to base themselves on trying to keep uh, on, on making the Chamber of Commerce happy, making the Amazon lobbyists happy, making other politicians happy and keeping them on their side, then when there are these threats that are made that, you know, well, you, we may not win it at the ballot. They end up completely folding like a house of cards rather than saying, you know what? There's a chance we might lose, but there's a chance we can win. Let's go to the doors. Let's actually build a fighting movement. And even if we don't win the ballot at the end of the day, we will be so much better off having fought that good fight rather than having folded right now. Because right now, if we repeal it, it is just handing the victory to Amazon on a golden platter. If you're going to go down, you go down fighting, not for the fetish of it, but to um, but to provide real lessons to the movement that you got to fight for what you want in a world that is defined by deep inequality and injustice. 
this is what it's going to look like. Working class people will need to fight for our interests, and sometimes that will be a bitter fight, and we got to ready ourselves for it. The other aspect of that that I wanted to, of my question that I wanted to follow up on, though, is with the influx of a lot of affluent people into Seattle in recent years and the skyrocketing number, well, I don't know if it's gone up, but there is a huge number of homeless people in, in Seattle. Is there a, react, a, a, a grassroots reaction against homeless people in the city? Thank you for asking that. I think there's two parts I would say to that. Um, one is that overall, I would say, I mean, I don't have a poll at my fingertips to prove my point, but I would say overall that just like anywhere in the U.S., people are more to the left now than they were five years ago in Seattle, in general, on most issues, um, because that's the way things are moving. However, there's two things that I need to mention. One is that because of the obvious failures of the democratic establishment in Seattle in um, providing even a modicum of solution to the homelessness problem, which has skyrocketed, you're right about that, um, and because of the um, emboldening of the small current of right wing in Seattle, at least partially because of Trump's election, but also I think in general, um, you, you can see there's some confusion on the question of homelessness because, uh, because the very fact that the democratic establishment has failed to address it gives ammunition to the truly reprehensible people, you know, the right wing, to say, look, these Democrats, they don't do anything for you. They take your money and they don't do anything, which is, I mean, it's partially, only partially accurate in the sense that the Democratic Party has not shown the leadership that it need, it should if it actually wants to help homeless people and address the affordable affordability crisis. But it is completely false, and this is why the right wing is so reprehensible, it's completely false to say that, oh, you're, they're taking taxpayer money and not doing anything. As a matter of fact, a lot of, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of shelter and affordable housing options are available. The problem is not that the taxpayer money is not going to not being used for it. The problem is that there's too little of it to go around, and that is why you need to tax big business. So, as a matter of fact, the council's capitulation to Amazon actually just fed into the right wing's accusations that the. Uh, that the Democrats don't do anything, even though, of course, the right wing was on the forefront of trying to defeat, you know, trying to get it to to be repealed. But my point is that it is the vacillation and the refusal to fight big business by the Democratic establishment that actually ends up strengthening the right wing. And whereas, uh, you know, even though it seems counterintuitive, whereas if we go out with a fighting message, if our movement has a fighting message saying, you know what, Amazon and Jeff Bezos, uh, have had it so cozy all this while. They, he's a, he's the richest man in the world. He can afford to pay a pocket change tax. Why should working people continue to be taxed? And this is the most regressive tax system in the entire nation. We are fed up of being taxed. Let's tax big business for a change. I have no doubt in my mind that we would have won the majority of the people uh, on that basis. Because look at the polls nationwide. Nationwide, the majority of America agrees that big business is taxed too little, that we need Medicare for all. I mean, name the progressive issue, and Americans are more progressive uh, more progressive today than they were 10 years ago. I'm guessing in Seattle there's still a sizable middle, upper middle class 
population of homeowners who are receptive to anti-homeless politics? I would I would be very careful and circumspect in, in saying that in the sense that certainly there is, as I said, there's a minority current of actually right-wing people or people who buy into right-wing politics. But the vast majority of people who own homes are not right-wing. I, I mean... Uh, how- I think some of these people might be watching MSNBC and then being like, I don't like homeless people in my neighborhood. I don't doubt that at all. I mean, certainly there is. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that everybody is. I mean, that uh, I'm not saying that there's a homogeneous op- opinion on this. And hom- homeless people, homeless community members are so demonized mm-hmm. and criminalized mm-hmm. in the media that I wouldn't be surprised if those ideas are, are quite prominent in people's minds. What I'm saying is that if there was a real strategy to end homelessness, I have no doubt in my mind that we could win the majority over to uh, our side. And I can tell you there is palpable anger throughout Seattle at the city council's capitulation uh, by repealing the tax. I mean, everywhere I go, people are like, I can't believe the city council did that. I mean, like I have people saying, out of sheer self-respect, you would think they would not do that. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, which is now out in paperback. Recent years have seen an explosion of protest against police brutality and repression. Among activists, journalists, and politicians, the conversation about how to respond to and improve policing has focused on accountability, diversity, training, and community relations. Unfortunately, these reforms will not produce results either alone or in combination. The core of the problem must be addressed, the nature of modern policing itself. This book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control. It shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment, social justice, even public safety. Drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world, In covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work, Alex Vitale demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. In contrast, there are places where the robust implementation of policing alternatives, such as legalization, restorative justice, and harm reduction, has led to a decrease in crime, spending, and injustice. The best solution to bad policing may be an end to policing as we know it. The End of Policing by Alex Vitale, out now in paperback from Verso Books. I want to ask you about two other housing-related issues. One is I saw something really interesting you said, at least once, maybe this is something you talk about more often, where where you framed rent control and access to housing as not only an economic justice issue, but also as a matter of queer liberation and I thought that was because of the traditional gay neighborhoods in Seattle being being squeezed by high housing prices. And I thought that was a really good example of how socialists 
can connect issues that might at the surface seem separate and unrelated to one another. Can you can you say a little about that? I, I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, just on rent control, I mean, the, the mythology uh, on rent control is so wrong. And as a matter of fact, rent control under capitalism, if you're talking about reform to provide affordable housing for the working class, for the poor, for the marginalized, then rent control has to be uh, an essential part of the program of reforms. And the reason it, uh, it, it has such an echo, not just rent control, but the fight for affordable housing has so, such a deep echo with LGBTQ community members because they, it, the way, I mean, the way marginalized people, including LGBTQ people, express, uh, I mean, sorry, experience oppression, obviously, uh, you know, we, we're, we have to talk about the uh, sexual violence or hate crimes that uh, communities face uh, in their workplaces, on the streets, in their rental apartment buildings, and so on. Uh, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, you know, discrimination against ten- establishing tenancy, and so on. Uh, all of this, uh, you know, is is you know, is it's for, for an LGBTQ person, it is very clear in Seattle. It is very clear that the gentrification of Seattle is a huge component of the oppression they're facing because Capitol Hill, as you mentioned, you know, Capitol Hill historically was, um, you know, as you would call a neighborhood, a, a gay neighborhood, and it was a thriving community of gay activists, artists, musicians, just a really culturally, um, quite a quite a vibrant community and it still is to some degree but it has changed dramatically in the intervening years and you know i've been in seattle only for nine and a half years and i used to live on capitol hill and even i can't recognize some of the street corners because it's so gentrified and it's clear only affluent people can go in these restaurants and so on and so for lgbtq people it's very clear that there is a link between the increased incidence of hate crimes, the persistent and in some ways increased discrimination they experience in Seattle, which used to be, you know, many ways their city. It's linked to uh, the way housing has become unaffordable. And it's amazing that when we are the first, uh, the first thing we did with the gay community was uh, an LGBTQ hate crimes forum in 2014. And I expected that we would, you know, end up, the community activists who were going to be there for the speak out would end up focusing on specifically the hate crimes. I was quite amazed to see that the theme of that day was absolutely on the affordable housing crisis. Another uh, real estate fight that you've been involved in that I think makes some interesting and maybe unusual connections for for socialist city politics is your involvement in the campaign to save the showbox a Seattle music venue that's slated to be torn down and replaced by condos. And you've not only made that a a priority, but also said that in the long term, you'd like to see the venue converted to public ownership. You said, quote, we have to fight hard to win the preservation of the showbox now. But as a socialist, I never stop with any one victory. I see no reason why this movement should not go forward and this should be a publicly owned venue. The city of Seattle should own this. The employees at the showbox should be city of Seattle employees. There's no reason why we shouldn't do that. 
Um, it, explain how you see the relate, how you see this fight over one music venue, which is a small scale and short term thing. How you relate it to larger scale ones, and then more generally, if you could talk a little bit about how you think about what was once called sewer socialism, this sort of concrete local radical politics and its ability to translate up to to bigger things. On the show box, I think uh, one of the principal determinants of why our why we made it a priority was absolutely the energy and the determination of ordinary people who started fighting for it. And uh, just to give you an example of what momentum that demand had, you know, the demand for saving the show box had, was a local musician, Jay Middleton, who, for whom the show box, you know, is a piece of his heart, he launched a petition, not expecting it to go anywhere, but simply did it as a labor of love because he had to do something. And before you know, it caught on fire and over 100,000 people signed that petition. But it wasn't just a passive or proxy mood. It was a movement. And when I say movement, it was at that moment, it was, it was, we had like a week and a half to do something about it. It was incredibly quick at that time in August before council went on its summer recess. And it wasn't just 100,000 people who signed the petition passively. It was hundreds of people who uh, not only called and emailed the council, but also came to City Hall. And what was what was important about the movement? Like, why did that movement achieve uh, a victory, albeit a temporary victory, because it, you know it, it's not permanent in any, by any means? Uh, was because the people who were part of the movement, who were active in the movement, who were starting to lead the movement were faced with one, one was just an organic reality of the movement, which is that there was no question of, you know, it was not like a minimum wage question where, oh, maybe we'll win 15 without loopholes, maybe we'll win 15 with loopholes. Here, it was a straight up yes or no question. Will we save the show box or not? There was no halfway, there was no middle ground uh, on that. There was no halfway house of demands that the movement could fight for. I mean, organically, that was something that favored the movement because it was all or nothing. But it is not just that. It was also the determination of the movement. And uh, I have to say, most of the people that we talked to, and we talked to hundreds of people in, in that week and a half, people said, you know, I am, I am fed up as a working person that everything in this city is sacrificed at the altar of profit, you know, for the highest bidder for the billionaires, for the wealthy. But me as an ordinary person, I don't get to live in this city. My rent keeps skyrocketing. I might become homeless someday, but even if I don't, I'm struggling to uh, you know, maintain a foothold in this city. And now you're taking away the show box. So for many people, it was like the last straw or, in, or really a metaphor. You know, The idea that the show box would be demolished was a metaphor for what they felt was a fight for the soul of the city itself. And everything in Seattle just being reduced to its ruthless valuation under capitalism. Yes, and, and, and not to mention uh, us becoming a city 
that was completely sterile and devoid of cultural vibrancy. And I'm and I and I don't and I'm not engaging in hyperbole or trying to overdramatize. This is indeed what people were feeling and are feeling, which is really uh, cemented the, the determination of the people that we're going to fight this. I'm I'm fed up and I'm not going to let them take my showbox away. That was what really made it possible. And there was another example, like $15 an hour, that a movement that is led by genuine people who want to win something, and that movement having a voice in City Hall through me, it was that combination that was able to push back against a city council that was actually, to be honest with you, viciously opposed to it. And I mean, it's like in the morning, Monday morning, that Monday morning, they it was they were going at it viciously. And these are this is a public meeting; you can watch it. And then by that afternoon, they had completely changed that their tune. And the same politicians were waxing eloquent about how they remembered their first show at Showbox and how much they wanted <laughs> to save it. And while it was completely cynical on their part, it, it represented how much pressure they felt from the movement. That's the kind of fighting spirit we need in all movements. My last question is, I want to just briefly talk socialist politics a little. You're a leading member of Socialist Alternative, and I'm wondering how you view the explosive growth of DSA. What's your take on the direction, or maybe better put, directions, plural, that DSA is heading? And how do you believe that that different socialist groups that have different approaches and, and philosophies but but do share a commitment to socialism, how should they relate to one another? I, myself, and my organization, Socialist Alternative, we view the, the explosive growth of DSA as an is a very, very welcome phenomenon. I mean, it just uh, makes me so happy to see that we have indeed, actually in many ways, turned a corner, you know, that there is, there is actually potential because um, not only are young people, especially the millennial generation, wanting, looking for a way to fight back, it is not even, uh, it's not even just that, We've come, this is America, <laughs> this is like the belly of the capitalist beast. And, you know, young people uh, are openly talking about socialism, openly subscribing to socialist organizations. This is truly a gigantic development. If you compare it to our, our you know, our parents' generations and the grandparents' generation, the Cold War era, you know, that whole, that whole stigma on socialism is gone. It's really the stigma on a legitimate anger against capitalism that is the defining feature. And there is so much openness and exploration of different ideas. And while obviously not all the organizations uh, that call themselves socialists don't agree on everything, you're right that we do agree on the need to fight against injustice. And I think what, what, what we should be on the left basing ourselves on is maximum unity in action while being very open and honest, but comradely in our differences. That is, I think that is the most important thing for us to understand that, that we can build united movements and it can be done, it should be done on a national level, but it should also be done in a regional level. If I might, just in closing, give you a concrete example. Next year, seven council members are up for re-election. And whether we, as working people, as socialists, whether we like it or not, big business is going to turn next year's elections in Seattle 
into the into a referendum on one single question who owns city hall does big business get to own it are these or are these uh, uppity workers going to decide what city hall does so whether we like it or not it's already framed that way so my question to my um fellow members on the left it ha has been and will be in the following year as can we run, can the left, can DSA, SA, and other organizations on the left, you don't have to be socialist, you know, if you want to fight against Amazon and against corporate politicians, then we are in this together. Can we run genuine candidates that represent our movement, that represents working class politics? Can we run as a slate of candidates against... Like a cross-endorsed, cross multi-tendency socialist slate? Absolutely, and, and this can be done. And, and in fact, one thing I'll mention quickly is um, the left in Vancouver, in British Columbia, is attempting something like this, and they're running three candidates this year, and the elections are going to happen soon. And one of them is Gene Swanson, who Socialist Alternative has not only endorsed, but we are campaigning for her. Uh, she is one of that slate of candidates, and that slate of candidates has uh, unified on a common platform called the city we need you know let's you they you they have united by saying that let's not accept what corporate politicians are willing to grant us can we unify on the basis of the city we need as working people and they're actually doing it so it can be done is this something that seattle dsa is currently in discussion with with uh sa over yes absolutely we are we are talking actively with dsa i believe they will be running at least one candidate if not two you know so it should go on. And the one other thing I will mention, I think it's very, very important, which is that um, in terms of the uh, DSA candidates who have won election, you know, specifically Julia Salazar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think the question also has to be how should they use their elected office? How can they remain accountable to the movement? And also, what is the movement? Like, you know, what is what are the demands the movement can make? And how are we going to organize around those two elected offices so that they can actually use that use their offices in the way that we have done, which is to amplify and further build social movements. Because otherwise, you know, I mean Congress is a cesspool. It has to be <laughs> That's a generous description. <laughs> that is true. I can think of worse things to say. <laughs> well, Council Member Shama Swant, thank you so very much. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure. Shama Sawant is a member of both the Seattle City Council of Socialist Alternative. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once remarked after noting that nowhere is the party in opposition that has not been decried as communistic by its opponents in power, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to give us a review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you, 
telling your friends about the show, either on social media or in person or wherever. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution so we can keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Thank you.